Father, we, we know from your accounts that you have delivered through Luke, the physician, how there was persecution taking place in the first century church and people like James lost their lives as a result of being a witness for you. And there are those who wanted to stop the message from going out. And Father, thank you that you gave them the ability to continue in the face of persecution. We would ask also that you would give us the ability, the strength, the drive, and the will, whatever obstacles we may come across, that we might be successful in sharing you and your love and the salvation that you have. We know that we are sinners to the core, Lord, and we understand that the enemy will come around to accuse us that we are not worthy and we are sinful. And we acknowledge all of that. But we ask that you would fill us with knowledge that we'd be able to move in the power of your spirit, disseminating this knowledge, the knowledge of what is to come all of eternity and how you want everyone there. So, Father, as we read your word, fill us with that knowledge. Help us to remember those who have gone before us thousands of years ago and even currently that they may share your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It says, it was about the time, or that time, this time, that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or it's at Passover time, those two are combined. After arresting him, he put him in prison, hanging him or handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. And of course, he probably intended to have the sham trial and to kill Peter. And this is Herod Agrippa I. Now, this wasn't the first case of persecution, and it will not be the last, even in our day. And there was an individual by the name of Sundar. Sundar was a Sikh. In 1905, he accepted the Lord. It was over in the area of India and Tibet. And he became a Christian. And he appeared to Sundar. And after he appeared to Sundar, Sundar recognized who he was and gave his life to him. Now, there are several stories about him, how he was an evangelist going to different countries and he experienced what the Western church was. And I think I told you last week that he criticized the Western church for being lovers of self and comfort. And if you know places like India and that region of the world, there's tremendous poverty over there. The people, they're they're wrapped up in the false religions of this world, Hinduism and Buddhism and Sikhism. All of those religions are there. Well, he got saved from all of that. And he went out and he was preaching in the street back in 1905, right after he got saved. And when he was preaching out of the street, they didn't like it. And so they took him and they threw him in a well of water. And they had a lid over that and they blocked the top of the lid. And as he fell down, he hurt his shoulder, his arm, 
as he went down into the water. And they used this well for killing people. And as he was down in the water, he knew that there were some old decaying bodies down in there. And after three days of being in the well, somebody opened the door at night and they let down a rope. And the rope had a hoop in the bottom to where he could put his foot in it. And he was pulled to the top by this individual. Once he got out, you know, he's kind of taking care of himself. The lid was closed by this other individual. It was locked. And as soon as he was done kind of getting his clothes in order, he turned around to thank the individual for getting him out of the well. And there was no one there. The person was completely gone. Now, it is believed that it was probably an angel that brought him out. So what did he do? He went back the next day to the same corner and started preaching again in the name of Christ. What a testimony. And remember, that's what Peter and the apostles did when they were arrested the first time. Now, remember, this is right around the year AD 45, and Christ was crucified around 33 AD. So this would have been about 12 years after the crucifixion of Christ. And in verse 5, we go on with this story. It says, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, this word earnest means stretching out all the way that they can for something. It can also be a medical term describing the stretching of a muscle to its limit. So when they were praying for Peter to be released, they were doing so earnestly. That's the word that we can use in the English language to accommodate the Greek here. And there is a promise for all believers that if we remain in Jesus and his words remain in us, we can ask whatever we wish and it will be given to us. Of course, this is according to God's will. It's given to us. But he has given us this promise. If it's according to God's will and we ask for it, we get it. So these people were praying earnestly for Peter to be rescued. Well, in verse 6, it says, The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. This would be where if, if he's sitting down, his right wrist would have been chained to the left wrist of a, shol- a soldier on his right-hand side, and his left wrist would have been changed to the, chained to the right hand of a soldier on his left side. And that's how he would have slept. And they would remove his clothes and his sandals and everything, and he'd just be laying there between these two soldiers. Verse 7 says, Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. Peter, or he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and the second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. This is kind of like the story of Sundar, only this was the original case. Now, there was a double guard 
uh, double, it was probably tripled. Uh, the guards that were out there were protecting Peter, Peter because I told you last time in Acts chapter 5 that all the apostles were arrested and during the night an angel of the Lord opened the door of the jail and brought them out. So this is the second time. That's why Herod doubled or tripled the guards that were there. So there, were, there was a guard on either side of him Then there were two sets of guards that he had to go past. And then he got to the gate of the city, which would have probably had the other set of guards there. There were 16 guards in all. Now, when something like this is taking place, you go, I think God really wants something to happen. And there's no way we are going to stop him from taking place, this thing from taking place. And remember back in chapter 5, the same time that the apostles were let out of jail and they went and they preached again. Well, Gamaliel was there and Gamaliel said, you know, if you're fighting against these men and it's just them, it'll come to nothing. But if you're fighting against God, that's who you're fighting against. And you're going to come to naught. There's nothing you're going to be able to do to keep this from happening. And we cannot in any way thwart the plan of God. Now, remember the guy in the Old Testament that got swallowed by a big fish? He, he tried to thwart the plan of God. Jonah, he got on a ship and went in the opposite direction. And God pretty much said, I'm not having any of it. And of course, all the other men that were on the boat that was out there on the ocean, they said, what are you sleeping for? Would you just wake up and pray to your God? Perhaps he'll save us from this. And he goes, hey, I know what the problem is. I'm running from God. And so they went and they prayed some more to their own gods. And he goes, that's not going to help. You got to throw me overboard. And so they threw him overboard. And when they threw him overboard, the gale force winds, they stopped. The sea went calm and he got eaten by this fish. And he was in there for three days. But he wanted to get away from what God wanted. And of course, God burped him up on the beach and he headed back towards Nineveh. And even when he got there, he started complaining about what was going on there. So he tried to thwart the plan of God. Now, sometimes we do that. God has a plan for us, and we just say, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. And God says, well, you're going to do it. Remember Moses? Send somebody else. God shows up to kill him. Zipporah's wife uh, circumcised her son, uh, took the foreskin, dipped it on the feet of Moses. Why was it on the feet? Was he sleeping, and his feet were sticking out of the blanket? What was he doing? We don't know, but he wanted to thwart the plan of God as well. He didn't want to go forward. He didn't want to be a part of what God was doing, and God wasn't going to have anything to do with it at all. Now, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 27, it says, for the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? Or Job 42, verse 2, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Now, there are several stories, additional stories in the Old Testament that you could turn to and you could say, Here, here's a plan that somebody is devising to try to stop God's plan from taking place. One of those would be the book of Esther. It's a fantastic book. You should read it. And I'm just going to summarize it for you a little bit. There was this king called Xerxes, and he had this wife, and her name was Vashti. Vashti was a very beautiful, very beautiful woman. It was his wife, and he summoned her. And she said, no, I'm not coming. And, of course, this was going against not only her husband, 
But the king and all of his counselors said, this is not good. And so they counseled him, put her away. You don't have to kill her. Just never see her again. And we'll come up with some virgins for you. And you can pick which one you would like. And she can be your new queen. And so that was the plan. Well, of course, there were some exiles in the land. One was Mordecai and the other was Esther. Esther was the niece of Mordecai. And Mordecai told Esther right up front, do not tell anybody that you are a Jew. And she was very lovely, the scripture says. She was pretty, both in form and in features. And so she ended up becoming part of this group of virgins, this harem that was supposed to be set apart for the king. And she had to go for beauty treatments for one year. Now, if she was already beautiful, I don't know what the beauty treatments did for her, but she had uh, myrrh and she had perfumes that she was, I guess, bathing in. I don't know, that just made her beautiful skin treatments. Wouldn't you ladies like to go for a full year and get these treatments? Well, the, she, she had that, the best of the land at that time. Now, Xerxes, his kingdom, went from India all the way to Africa, to Cush. That whole region belonged to Xerxes. He was a very powerful man. Well, when Mordecai was there in the citadel of Susa, uh, he would stand when this one particular guy, like the prime minister, his name was Haman, Haman would go by, and by the king's edict, everybody had to bow to Haman and, and prostrate themselves before him when he went by. Mordecai? No, ain't doing it. And he would stand there in defiance and wouldn't bow down. This enraged Haman. Haman said to himself, I'm going to pay this guy back. And so what he did, he knew Mordecai was a Jew. So he convinced King Xerxes to write an edict to get rid of all the Jews in the kingdom. And, of course, Haman convinced him. He wrote this edict. It went out to all the land from India all the way to Africa. Slaughter the Jews. Now, during this time, Mordecai went to Esther and said, Esther, do you know what's going on here? This is not a good thing because do you think, being a Jewess, that you will also avoid being killed even though you are Actually, the, the queen now, she went through the beauty treatments and she was favored by the king and the king did, ended up making her queen. And so Mordecai said, you better pray and go talk to the king. Well, it was illegal for her to walk into the presence of the king unless she was summoned. And she could be killed as a result of that. So she prayed and fasted for three days neither did she drink water or eat food and she had Mordecai do the same thing and she says if I die I die and she was going to go into the king King Xerxes so three days passed she got up the courage and she walked into the king's chamber and of course the king looked at her and he extended his scepter towards her that means he accepted her and she was able to walk forward she touched the scepter and she made a request And the request was that Haman, who had written this edict to kill all the Jews, and King Xerxes would come to a banquet that day. And so they did. They came to a banquet, and Xerxes says, I'll give you anything that you want, even up to half the kingdom, because he was so pleased with her. And she said, well, you know, the only thing I really want is that you come to another banquet tomorrow. 
And I'm going to set this up for both you and Haman. And I'd like to honor you guys. And so they said, well, wonderful. And Haman went home and said, well, the queen, she likes me. This is a good deal. You know, I'm in like Flint. I'm wealthy and I'm like in charge. And he was filled with pride. But he had also planned to kill Mordecai and set up some gallows in front of his house to later hang him when the time was right. And it was coming up pretty close to the time. And so Esther at the second banquet she decided that she was going to serve this nice food and the king was there and he said again, what can I give you? What would you request? And she spilled the beans on Haman, how Haman put this edict out and that she was a Jew and he wanted to kill all the Jews and she desired that Xerxes reverse this. Now he couldn't really reverse it. All he could do is write another edict to arm all the Jews in all the 127 provinces that were across his kingdom. And that's what he did. Well, Haman, Xerxes, took him and hung him on his own gallows. Now, this was a move in which all the Jews would be killed. How many times in history have the Jews gone into exile or they tried to wipe them all out? There have been a couple of times in history. World War II, we know that it was taking place then. Haman, also, he devised a a scheme to kill all the Jews. And God was not going to have it. God wanted to preserve the line. Now, if the line wasn't preserved, if you had no Jews, you couldn't have the Messiah. God would be called a liar, and his plan for salvation for everybody would have been thwarted. And God, again, was not going to have it. And so because of this... Mordecai, right before this took place, Mordecai had uncovered this plot for uh, two people. They were going to kill the king, King Xerxes. Mordecai uncovered it, and one night before they had this banquet, the king couldn't sleep, and so he called for the chronicles of his kingdom, and he was reading through this, and he saw that Mordecai had saved his life. And so he went to Haman and he said, Haman, what am I supposed to do about this? What if I wanted to honor somebody and just really bless them? What do you think I should do? And Haman thought he was talking about him. And so Haman said, well, this is what I would do. I would give him a signet ring and a robe that you would wear and run him through the streets and have everybody bow down to him. And he goes, perfect. That is just the the prescription I've been asking for. And he said, it's Mordecai. Put Mordecai on the horse and run him through the street and you lead the horse. Just God was going, not only is this not going to happen, but this is a finger in your eye, Haman, and you're not going to succeed in this. And so he was humiliated and his wife told him, this is your downfall. You are going down from this point. And of course, God saved all the Jews as a result of this. But Satan was the one who influenced Haman to kill the Jews, just like I believe, whether it's Karl Marx or it's Hitler, those guys were influenced by the demonic realm to kill all the Jews. Who do you think is inspiring the Arab countries surrounding the nation of Israel today to get rid of all the Jews? Yasser Arafat, demonically inspired. I am confident that that was the case. And God is just not going to have his plan thwarted, just like when it comes to you and I. No one is going to thwart his plan to bring us to the kingdom of God, to bring us into glory. Nobody can snatch you out of his hand. That's the promise that we have from him. So this idea that we've been given false information to about what happens to us after we die, what's going to take place, and and if we get killed, do we 
get reincarnated, whatever the case might be in some of the cults that are out there. God tells us, you know, it's one time in history where we are going to die. We, we have this appointment. Now, Peter, it wasn't his time to die, but he did have an appointment with death. All of us have that appointment. Now, Madeline, who we're going to do her service coming up this Monday at five o'clock, she had an appointment. She is now, her address has changed. It's not back east. It's in heaven now. That's where she is today. She's so lucky she made it there before us. But, but the idea, we have a place to go, but there is a definite time. There isn't going to be multiple times, multiple chances, reincarnation, that type of thing. We know scripture tells us, Hebrews chapter 9, that we have an appointment. One appointment, and then comes our judgment. And for us who are believers, we who are believers, it is a reward that awaits us. It was not Peter's time. So what can you say about Peter or any one of us? We are pretty much indestructible until God says, it's your time. And we can be confident in that. As long as we're walking with the Lord, as long as we're remaining in him and not doing stupid and foolish things, you know, Job says, why die before your time? Don't live foolishly. And so I think that there's a chance that we can die before, quote unquote, an appointed time. But God still knows that time. We have an appointment with destiny. And we're supposed to prepare for that time that is ahead. But digressing here, verse 11, says, Then Peter came to himself and says, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. These are the people who are praying praying earnestly. Peter knocked, verse 13, at the outer entrance, and the servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. Now, this is a young girl. This is the word that is used here in the original language. She's a maiden. And so she's a a teenager of some kind. Now, how excitable are teenagers? They are so excitable. I I saw this one little video. It's kind of, I guess the word for women would be cute. You know, it was kind of fun to watch. This one teacher, he stands up in front of this class, and he's standing next to a female teacher right here, and he starts saying, maybe some of you have heard that I am dating Mrs. or Miss so-and-so here, the teacher. And you could hear the girls in the background screaming just because he is telling them that he's dating her. And he eventually says, and I want to let you know that I'm going to ask her to be my wife. The girls just erupted, falling over themselves. And he gets down on his knee and they just erupt in screaming. Well, this is Rhoda. Rhoda is like, what? Peter's there. She runs back. She tells, Peter's at the door. Peter's at the door. And what do the people say? Verse 15, you're out of your mind. And you would think she was, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. Oh, he's dead. They have already killed him. And of course, Verse 16, but Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him. They were astonished. Peter motioned with his hands for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Oh, he's dead. They opened the door. It's Peter. Then they start screaming. 
Literally, they're screaming, they're jumping up and down, they're grabbing him, and he's going, quiet down, it's the middle of the night, what are you guys doing? You know, quiet. So this is the scene that's taking place. And so, for us, the Lord answers prayer, and you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt when he does do it, when, when you see that he has answered it, you get all excited on the inside, I know it had to be the Lord. There could be no other way. And when you pray and you ask the Lord for something, or you want to sign for something, you know how people have prayed, Lord, if it's your will, may there be a white car that passes me in the next 30 seconds. You know what the most uh, populous car is? That color is white. If you pray something like that, it's like, oh, come on. Pray something that's impossible. You know, that some stranger would walk up to you and say, it's the Lord's will that you do whatever it is. Something like that. You know it's the Lord and you can get all excited like, wow, he answered. The God of the universe that created everything, he answered me. And that's what these people realized. God answered their prayer. They were so excited. They saw him. They couldn't stop from yelling and screaming. And Rhoda was probably jumping higher than anybody else that was there. And they were just so pleased that God had done this. He goes, okay, now I'm going to go take off somewhere. Because, of course, Herod would have been looking after him after this. Now, it goes on. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. Now, oh, excuse me. I skipped some here. It says, tell James, this is in uh, verse 17, tell James and the brothers about this. He said, and then he left for another place, verse 18, in the morning there was no small commotion amongst the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. No small commotion. I think that that is not strong enough language there, but I'll leave scripture as God wanted it to be. And after Herod had a thorough search made for him. He did not find him. He cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Now, I told you this last week. If you have a prisoner and you're a Roman soldier and he escapes, you die. So he killed all 16 soldiers. Now, God's plan cannot be thwarted. Now, James is mentioned here, and James is the brother of Jesus, who is also a leader in the church at Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 15, when we get there, we're going to see that there is a a meeting, so to speak, of those who are Judaizers and Paul and Barnabas. And there was this idea, especially in the churches in Galatia, that you had to keep the law of Moses as well as confess Jesus Christ. And there was no small dispute between Paul and Barnabas and the Judaizers who were claiming this. And so they went to Jerusalem and they asked them to adjudicate the matter. And of course, Peter Peter spoke up first and says, you know, the Lord opened the door for us to go to Gentiles. And then James spoke. And James says, we're not going to add any other burden to these Gentiles. We couldn't even keep the law and we're not going to make them keep the law as well. So James and Peter were the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. After this, since these guys were executed, these guards, Herod said, enough of this. And he took off and he went up to Caesarea. Now, this is Caesarea Maritima. So then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. Now, this is 70 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And he had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they 
excuse me, they now joined together and sought an audience with him, having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king. They asked for peace because they they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, wearing his robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not a man. Now, this is flattery. This is flattery used to get something. And we can use flattery. These people were using flattery. They just wanted to pump him up like he is so great. And what did he do with that flattery? He just received it. He goes, I know. I know. Just come on. Keep giving it to me, so to speak. So... It says on verse 21, on the appointed day, Herod, wearing a royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered the public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Now, this isn't a MCU movie where somebody gets eaten instantly by the worms and just devoured and it goes down to the skeleton and the skeleton turns to dust. That's not what happened here. Let me continue and I'll explain a little more. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. And now, background information. Remember, there were some offerings set aside because Agabus had said there's going to be a famine in the land, and so they set aside money and they gave it to the church to Barnabas and to Saul and to take it down to Jerusalem and it says here once they did that they left and went back up uh, to Antioch up there and continued ministering and they took Mark with him also now let's digress a little bit we see Herod now Herod he is supposed to be giving this speech and he's sitting there on this throne now, if you go to Caesarea Maritima, and Daryl, could you give me the first picture on there? This is the amphitheater, the actual amphitheater that Herod would have been sitting in. Now, this is from the top, looking down towards the Mediterranean Sea. They use this today. They will set up productions there. They'll put chairs on that lower flat section there. And if you were up in the audience sitting around, and there would have been hundreds and hundreds of people there because Tyre and Sidon were there as well. He comes out, and in the middle of that stage, he would have had a throne to sit on. So he sits down, and you can tell from this particular view, if you were up on top, the sun is behind them. It is east behind them. The sun would have been coming down, gleaming on his coat, which would just be glistening. And, of course, they gave him flattery, and he goes, I know, give more to me. And they would have all watched him bowl over and have tremendous stomach and intestinal pain at that point. And they would have been saying, what is going on with this? You want to show them the other picture as well? Now, that would have been his view of the people that's there. And if you go to Israel, you're going to go to this particular city, Caesarea Maritima, and you will be able to stand on the site. Now, they have replaced some of the top stone there so that they can use the area. But there are other areas like around the Hippodrome where they still have the seating, the original seating that was there. They have just put a veneer of stone up on top. And so this would have been the view. This is what you would have seen if you were there and Herod was down there and he probably fell out of his throne because the pain was so severe for him. And of course, this would have been some type of parasite, a worm that's on the inside. Now, in our soil around this area, we have what are known as nematodes. 
Nematodes are almost microscopic worms that are in the ground, in the soil. If you look at a, a rose bush, sometimes you have galls on the rose bush. Those are, called, are caused from nematodes. Nematodes create problems in the soil. That's why you never want to put dirt in your mouth because you can get some nematodes in your mouth. <clears throat> and it can be a real problem. Well, these particular worms, I don't know that they were nematodes, the little microscopic ones. They could have been other types of worms. You know, p- these foreign countries... Even today, we give them dewormer, and there's real worms. I mean, worms that can be several feet long, tapeworms, things like that. Well, he had these on the inside, and the reason we know this is because Josephus was there at the autopsy. Five days later, he died, and he was eaten from the inside out, and they opened him up, and he was just full of worms on the inside. What a horrible way to die but he took all the praise and glory for himself and God is not going to share his glory with anyone the scripture says so this is a judgment for anybody who would claim to be a God keep this in mind when the Antichrist shows up he wants to be worshipped his judgment is going to be more severe than it was for King Herod here so this is the amphitheater and Herod Agrippa was the one who died Herod Agrippa the first and Herod Agrippa, how, how did he get to this position? Herod Agrippa was uh, good buddies with Tiberius, Tiberius Caesar. There's a town on the uh, western shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's called Tiberius, and it's named after this emperor. And if you go there, you'll probably stay in Tiberius, up in the area of Galilee. It's a wonderful place up there. But Tiberius, he was friends with him. He was also friends with Caligula. Uh, the next emperor who was there, and Claudius. And he would hobnob with them. He would, would be real good buddies, and they would go to different parties and events together. And that's how he got his uh, stent being a king in the area of Judea. And Caesarea Maritima was the capital of Rome for Judea. It wasn't Jerusalem. And so that's where he was hanging out. Now, going on in chapter 13 here, verse 1. In the church at Antioch, so Paul and Barnabas left, and now you go back to Antioch. There were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now, just in these three verses here, there's so many things, and we're going to park here for a little bit, but so many things we really need to know. Now, one of them that I mentioned last week was the prophets. Now, Agabus... Have we, he is mentioned twice in the book of Acts. Agabus in chapter, excuse me, uh, 11 and 21, he's mentioned. And I gave you those instances last week. But there were other prophets at that time. Now, the apostle Paul, you could probably consider him a prophet. He got direct revelation from God and he was able to teach the people. He got the doctrine. So I, I would consider him one as well as Barnabas and Simeon. These guys were prophets, all of them. So how many prophets were there in the first century church? We don't know. There was more than a few. 
there were, I would say, enough to meet the needs of wherever the church went, there would be a prophet because they didn't have the scriptures yet. All they had was the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament, the letters that were circulated amongst the churches at the time. So God had to use the apostles, or he chose to use the apostles and the prophets to get his word out and his will dictated to the people. That's how he did it. Now, the question that came up and uh, it came up to me last week somebody asked me about it well he was listening to another pastor and this other pastor said there are no apostles and there are no prophets today and i thought you know i should probably address that a little more so in the new testament we definitely have prophets which were around in the old testament we have their books isaiah jeremiah ezekiel daniel hosea joel amos obadiah jonah micah nahum apica zaphaniah haggai zechariah malachi we have all of those prophets in the old testament not to mention moses and joseph and everybody else who god used in the old testament new testament we have them named for us here also in the new testament we have them depicted for us in the book of revelation revelation chapter 11 there are two more prophets in the book of revelation now i would agree that apostles there are no more apostles today and that's based on a couple of scriptures first we know that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and it also says and prophets prophets were part of the foundation of the church then we also know that things that mark an apostle signs wonders and miracles I, I haven't seen the parting of Lindo Lake. I, I haven't seen fire being called down from heaven. I haven't seen, not that it can't take place, I haven't seen people raised from the dead, although there are accounts of people being raised from the dead. And those people that get raised from the dead who do the action of praying for them and they're raised from the dead, do they call themselves apostles? Well, okay. You can call yourself an apostle, but there's one more thing that is a qualification for an apostle. And it is in Acts chapter 1, verse 21. I'm going to read it to you here and verse 22. It says, therefore, it is necessary to choose one man. This is when Matthias was chosen to replace Judas. One man who has been with us the whole time, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. From one of these must become one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection so you had to actually be around jesus from the beginning of john the baptist until his resurrection the apostle paul was he was around during that time he was just as he terms himself one abnormally born he came after all of that god saved him so that's why he's an apostle and god appeared to him after the resurrection on the road to damascus we know the story about that so if you meet all three of those criteria you're part of the foundation of the church signs wonders and miracles and you were there at the time of jesus christ beginning with John the Baptist and his resurrection. Okay, you can be an apostle. If you're still alive from that time, you can be an apostle. Otherwise, if you're calling yourself an apostle, you are a false apostle. Even though God may choose to work through you, that can happen, but God does that. He will work through even jackasses to speak to human beings, right? He can choose to use whoever he wants to use. But when it comes to the prophets... It doesn't say, as I mentioned last week, that the prophets, the office of a prophet will ever cease. And of course, we're to judge them by the book of Deuteronomy. If they're ever wrong, they're not a prophet of God. Now, the people who would say that that office does not exist, 
they're normally what's called a cessationist. A cessationist believes that the gifts of the spirit, the sign gifts specifically, are no longer in operation today. Those would be the gift of prophecy, the gift of knowledge, the gift of tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. And it's because of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, they say when the perfect has come, these things will be done away with. And they say that perfect, which is to come, is the canon of scripture. We no longer need these gifts and we no longer need prophets because the canon of scripture is complete. Well, what about the places where there is no canon of scripture, where they don't have the Bible? And they have somebody come in and they give a prophetic word or something like that. And by the way, the, the prophet was able to give what God's word is both from the past, the present, and the future. And what I mean by the past, it means he could look at something in scripture and fill in some of the blanks that are there and it would still comport with scripture. It would not be outside of scripture. He could also do foretelling and forthtelling. The difference between the two is you tell somebody what God is going to do right now and this is his will. And you can also say this is going to happen in the future. That's what a prophet would do. And we know that there are prophets still in the book of Revelation. And so the office has not ceased. And how many centuries or was it for centuries that the prophets existed? Was it just the first century or did it go beyond the first century? Or did it go to several centuries after that? All you have to do is search through church history and there will be people that show up in the writings that will say there were, there were prophets around. And I'm not going to bore you with all the details of that, but there were those who were considered prophets. And so for the person who says there is no prophet today, I, I would just put on the brakes a little bit. I would just judge them. If they're ever wrong, they're not a prophet. And so I'm not as dogmatic as to say apostles are not for today. I don't say that same thing for prophets. But if somebody claims to be a prophet, and I've had somebody stand before me and basically claim that they were a prophet, I crossed my arms and said, uh-huh, yeah, right. And you have a bridge for sale that's red in San Francisco too, don't you? And I didn't believe him that he thought that he was a prophet. And he also encouraged me to get a machine gun permit. It's like, what? Is this the Lord telling you this? You know. So anyhow, there are people who will claim to be prophets and we know false prophets will come. We know this in Mark chapter 13. We know it in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. There's going to be false prophets, but are there going to be true and tried real prophets? Well, there's no reason to believe that there won't be. But all they will do is tell us what scripture has to say and they will always be in line with the teaching of scripture. They will not be outside of the confines of proper doctrine. And so that's how you can judge it. Never wrong and in line with the scripture. And you can say that. So uh, another thing that is here in these passages, specifically in verse 2, deals with fasting and the Holy Spirit. So what is fasting? I think we all know what fasting is. The latest diet which is out there. One of the latest diets says don't eat after 6 o'clock. 
right? If you don't eat after six o'clock, you're fasting, you're not eating. Ramadan, they don't eat during the day, but they gorge at night. You know, they're fasting. All these different world religions usually teach something along the line of fasting. But you don't want to be an adherence to Jainism. Jainism is one, the hope is that you fast so much that you just die, that you stop living because you're so into fasting and you think that that's beneficial. And, And so all these false religions, they practice fasting, but Jesus as well as people in the Old Testament, they practiced fasting. It's the withholding of food, water, and sex, according to Scripture. Now, you cannot do without air. You can't fast on air. You will end up passing out, and it's not going to be very good for you. But these things are talked about in Scripture, for instance, with the uh, sexual relationship, First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, talks about the wife's body is not her own. The husband's body does not belong to him. It belongs to the wife. And the only reason you would withhold is for a time of prayer and fasting. That's why you withhold. But then after that, it's supposed to be full steam ahead on the relationship. When it comes to food and water, I, I told you about Esther. She fasted for three days, no food and no water. Moses fasted for 40 days, no food and no water. Jesus did that no food and no water i do not recommend that you go without water i'm just going to tell you right up front after 100 hours you know in turkey they've been talking about it's 100 hours and you will succumb to dehydration if nothing else because you don't have water and some people are more dehydrated than others and so this idea of fasting should we practice fasting should this be a part of the christian experience i'm going to get into this fully next week Because there's so much to give you here on that and also on the Holy Spirit. We really need to dig in to who the Holy Spirit is. And we did a a, a teaching on the Holy Spirit and baptism of the Spirit and filling of the Spirit when we first got into the book of Acts. But we're just going to look at the characteristics, the nature of who he is. And we want to recognize the works that he did in the Old Testament. He is the one that is guiding us today. He is with us and he lives inside of us. He is guiding the church. He is the third person of the Trinity. So we need to be familiar with who he is and also who he isn't, what he doesn't do, what he would not recommend. And that's why we have the scripture is to delineate those things for us. So just doing an application review here. Peter was in chains and it wasn't his time to go. It wasn't his uh, appointment, so to speak, that he was supposed to go and be with the Lord. And the same thing, as I previously said, it applies to us. We are protected by God. As long as we're not foolish, we're protected by God. Nothing can happen to us. I'll close with this little story. I mentioned this a few years ago. There was a guy... He was out on a boat fishing in the middle of the ocean. He's like 40, 60 miles out in the ocean. He was fishing out there. And he was having a, a grand old time. This is a true story. He was having a, a fantastic time out there fishing. And being out there in the middle of the ocean, there is this fish called a spine fish. And the spine fish came out of the water. It's like a flying fish. Came out of the water, flew into the boat, and stuck its spine that comes out of its face into the aorta artery in his leg. He bled to death on the boat. Do you think it was his time? It was his time. 
If, if God wants to take us, no matter where we are, we could be in the middle of the ocean, we could be in outer space, we could be under the ocean, we could be on land anywhere, it could be our time. But until then, we just relax. It's not my time yet. And we're just going to do what God wants us to do. We should do. I should do what God wants me to do until that time. Until he calls me home. Just like when he called Paul home. He knew it was his end. He knew he wouldn't be seeing the rest of the brothers and sisters. And of course it grieved them tremendously. But we all have time to do God's will. And if he wants to get us out of a bad situation, 16 people can die as God wants us to move forward and they would be opposing us. We saw that in the scripture. And those who oppose God, if you oppose the will of God, if you take any accolades to yourself, we already saw what can happen to Herod. So the call is for us to be humble and to be satiated with God's providence, with his care over us. We don't have to worry And we don't have to fret what lies ahead. God is the one who is in control. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Peter, his faithfulness to you. I'm sure he was distraught being in that jail. And yet today he is in glory with you, sitting on a throne with you. We would ask that you would help us to have his faith. His faith after he was encouraged, after denying you. His faith after he was released from the prison knowing that you are able to do the miraculous if necessary to preserve our lives until our jobs are through. We'll rest in that, Lord. You are the God who cares, the one who sees, the one who provides, and the one who is all-powerful. And we recognize you for it and for your mercy. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Please stand.